Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On March 18, 1990, twin girls Donette and Johnette Millbrook walked away from their local gas station in Augusta, Georgia, where they disappeared into thin air. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime and Knit. Welcome to season four. I am here. I am back. I am drinking my matcha and I am so excited to be here today and bring some attention to these cases that need it the most. Let's get started. The very loved fraternal twin girls, Donette and Johnette, were born in August, Georgia on April 2nd, 1994. The girls were reserved, but very close to each other. They were known to sit on the porch and chat with each other for hours, but they were often too shy to talk to any passerbyers who would try to engage with them, but they really enjoyed each other's company and the company of their family members. On March 18th, the girls were sent on an errand by their mom to buy Sunday lunch for the family. At the time, the family had just moved to the neighborhood and money was tight. The money was actually given to them by the pastor that day at church. So that way the family can have something to eat that night. And so the girls walked to the local church's chicken with the money. Um, they bought the food and then they returned home to be with their family. And this walk was approximately 30 minutes one way, 30 minutes back. I've heard some sources say 15. Unfortunately, with this case, you're going to hear a lot of times in which, you know, information may just slightly differ. And we're going to talk about why that is in a minute. But anyway, it was a walkable distance. And the girls always walked, you know, they were comfortable with walking on their own. But this time, when the girls got home, they had an interesting story to tell. They claimed that a man was driving a white van and was following them while they were walking. And the family says that the man was bothering them. They use that word bothering, but we don't know, you know, if words were exchanged between the two parties, this information may have just been lost in time. But we do know that the twins were deeply disturbed by this man driving this white van. After lunch, the twins were concerned about finding means of transportation for school the next week. And remember, they had just moved. And now 
actually um, lived outside of their school district. And so the bus wasn't able to pick them up. And so they decided to walk to their godfather's house to ask for bus fare. And their godfather gave them $20, which was more than enough for bus fare for that week. And so that the girls can get themselves a treat from the local store. And so he sent the girls off on their way. And what happened next is very out of character for the twins. They made three stops after visiting their godfather's house. First, they went to their cousin's house where they asked her to walk home with them, which was out of character because they were never afraid to walk home alone before. They never asked for help before. Remember, these girls are 15 and, you know, they are at that age where they're where you're independent. But their cousin was around their age and was forbidden to go by her mother, who said it was getting dark. In preparation for this video, in preparation for me telling you this story today, I watched a documentary produced by Oxygen Network, which is a TV network here in the US, owned by Oprah. And the cousin says in this documentary that she wanted to go with them so bad that she cried herself to sleep that night. And she just felt it was super unfair that the girls were able to walk out at this time of day and she couldn't. But little did she know that this decision would possibly save her life. The twins then made another stop. They had an older sister who lived nearby and so they decided to ask her if she would walk home with them. And at the time, their older sister had just had a baby. And so walking home was just out of the question for her after a baby, specifically if you have a vaginal delivery, you are sore, you are tired, bleeding, and then you have a child yelling at you the whole time. So she just was not able to do so. Later, upon reflecting on this exchange between her and the twins, she noted that it was just odd that they were asking, almost pleading her to walk with them. And so the girls decided to make one more stop. With the money that their godfather gave them to treat themselves, they went to the local gas station called the Pump and Shop. Now, in these smaller rural communities, not really rural, but in these smaller communities, it is common for the local gas station to be a type of community. And it will almost act like your local grocery store. We used to have one before it got plowed down by the local interstate. But it's where you get all your essentials and you tend to see everyone who's anyone in the neighborhood. And as a result, the girls were well known here by Miss Gloria, the clerk that worked the counter. And Miss Gloria says that the girls bought a can of chips, candy, and something to drink before leaving. And after helping the next customer at the at the counter, Miss Gloria looked back at the road, but the girls were nowhere to be seen. They were gone in that instant and have yet to be seen. Back at home, their mother, Mary Sturgis, who went by the name Louise, was just troubled. The girls were always back by nightfall, and she knew that something had to have went wrong because it was dark, and her girls were nowhere to be seen. And so she and her younger daughter, Sh Shanta, Sh I think it's Shanta or Shanta, went to search for the twins. At this point, Louise already had a feeling that something was terribly wrong. And in a documentary, she says that she wasn't sure what she was going to find, which is absolutely horrifying. Louise and Shanta walked up and down the road, but saw no signs of Donette and Jeanette. 
And that was when Louise decided to do the right thing here and call the police immediately. But the police claim that she had to wait 24 hours before the twins could be considered missing, implying that the girls just ran away on their own accord, which you know, happens more so than kidnappings. But still, there's a reason why nowadays when you report a minor missing, they immediately treat it as if it's foul play because of cases like this. But yes, at this time in 1990, they were like, ah, they're missing. They're like, ah, they ran away. So Johnette called back and a detective was officially given the case. And it was a man named Detective Ship. And he told her that the girls were runaways and that essentially there was no case. Yes, you heard me. The police decided not to actively search for the girls and classified them as runaways. We actually do not know anything but hearsay about the original case. It was closed when the girls turned 17 because they are legally too old to be forced to go home. Since then, the original files have been lost. And this goes back to why information is just so sketchy because the original police report with the family, you know, like like where the family told their story and said what happened, all that is gone, completely lost to time. And of course, because the girls weren't treated as a missing person, because they were never searched for by authorities, the family have been openly critical about the way the case has been handled. And as a result, in 2013, the case was reopened, but no movement has yet to be seen. However, however, the police did come up with an official explanation for why the case was closed. Police claim that they thought the girls had been put in foster care. And so they thought the girls were removed from their mother's home, again, no evidence of this, and placed in foster care. This, of course, is completely untrue. And the only explanation that the family can have for this confusion was that the twins did have family members who had a child in foster care. The thing is, I'm not sure if it was a last name mix-up. There's not a lot of information on this other case within the family where, you know, a child was placed in foster care, because quite frankly, it's none of our business. But the police just got it confused, which is so odd, because it's not like it's another set of twins. It's not like they have the same name, Johnette and Donette. But here's where I should note that the twins came from quite a large family. They were only two out of 10. Yes, 10 siblings. So it wasn't uncommon for good intentioned people in the neighborhood to have claimed to have seen Jonathan and Donnet after their disappearance. And then they would like report these sightings. But the thing is, they were most likely seeing their family members, their sisters. And when I was watching the documentary, you know, I noticed a very strong family resemblance. Everyone resembled the mother. So it's very easy to just be like, oh, that's so-and-so, but it's just their sister who looks exactly like her. Like the sister Chantal was only two years younger than the twins. So when you're that close in age, look very similar, it's very easy to, you know, misidentify someone. And to this day, 
as of May 2022, we have not seen or heard from the twins. So now let's get on to the theories. In 1993, a body of a Jane Doe was found off of Highway 191 in Aiken County, South Carolina. These remains are still unidentified, but it is believed that she was murdered sometime between 1990 and 1992. So her timeline lines up with the twins. Now, the family believe that this Jane Doe looks like Johnette, but this observation was only based upon facial reconstruction. I should note that upon the finding of this body, police were sure that it was not the twins, but we do not know why or how uh, they came up with this conclusion. Still, there is a change.org petition right now, that's I'll link it in the show notes, urging police to compare DNA from the Aiken County Jane Doe to the family DNA. But as of 2022, there has been no updates despite the fact that the police have both DNA samples in their possession. So this Jane Doe could be one of the twins. It could be. She's around the same age. Uh, the family thinks that the facial reconstruction looks like Johnette, but honestly, truly, the only way that we can find out is if we get this DNA tested. So, of course, I'm going to put that change.org petition down below so that we can sign it and bring more attention to this case and urge police to test the DNA. So that way, this family could get some type of closure. Just please, just test the DNA. The case is already open. It's just... I. <laughs> I don't understand why not, why they just can't test it at this point. But anyway, let's move on to the next theory. Now, there's something that I've yet to mention about the twins. The twins lived with their mother and siblings. But before then, up until the age of two, they lived with their mother and father, John Millbrook. Now, John Millbrook was known to be a violent and cruel man with connections to the local crime underworld. The twin's mother, Louise, actually left John because she was worried that he would begin to physically abuse their daughters. At the time, John Millbrook was well known to just be an awful person. And even when the girls went missing, he would tell their sister Shanta that if police asked for him, that she was to tell them that he was dead. And so he wanted absolutely nothing to do with the disappearances of these two girls. Now, John was known to police because he was active in the crime world. He was a known drug user and is alleged that he uh, would lend his home to drug dealers to use as a type of base or a hub to conduct their business. So he was just all around bad and just was in the wrong circles. But it is believed that John knew of a man named Joseph Patrick Washington, who lived in the area and worked at the local brickyard. It is known that at this time, these criminals would dump bodies at the local brickyard. It is this horrible, somewhat abandoned place right now. It's a very open, open area with lots of debris. They found like women's clothing just laying around. It just seemed like the type of place where if you were going to commit a crime or dump a body, just the perfect place to do that because no one was around and you didn't have to 
bury it. There was really, really heavy woods in the area, uh, heavy amount of like weeds where you can hide someone in the brush. Um, so he worked at this sketchy area that was known at the time of their disappearance to be a dumping ground. In 1995, Joseph Patrick Washington was sentenced to life in prison for abducting and assaulting five women. And he had killed two of these women. Now, Joseph would drive around, you know, looking for his next victim. He would drive up to them and abduct them at gunpoint, threatening to shoot if they did not comply with his demands. Though Joseph did not drive a white van similar to the one that the girls described to have been following them, he had access to many, many, many types of vehicles at his job as he would do transport for the brickyard. Now, what's better to transport construction materials than a white van? I mean, we see it all the time, even to this day. So just because he did not have a white van in his possession doesn't mean that he could not have been driving one that day. And get this, this blew my mind. In the documentary, it was said that Joseph actually abducted a woman at the pump and shop that the girls were last seen at. Now, I could not find any hard evidence online. I just want to be clear that I could not confirm this statement with the resources that I have. But even if he never abducted a woman from the pump and shop, the fact that he's in this area, in this neighborhood, living and working, you know, close to this pump and shop and he's already known to have done this to five victims two of which are deceased that we know of it is not a far jump to believe that joseph could have had a hand in their disappearances especially in the manner in which the twins were last seen remember the twins were last seen by the clerk in the pump and shop where they said bye they left the shop and then next time she looked up a few seconds or maybe a minute later they were gone and this kind of matches the way that Joseph would abduct his victims. He would go up to them very quickly, hold a gun up and say, I will shoot you if you don't get into my vehicle. And of course, that would take, what, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. It's the type of abduction that fits the facts that we have. And so that is one of the theories that many people are are leaning towards. Unfortunately, Joseph is now deceased. And so we cannot ask him. And honestly, truly, we won't be able to trust anything he says anyway. But I am personally leaning towards the belief that Joseph knew of the twins, maybe saw them at their father's apartment, got interested in them, and maybe chose them to be their next victim. That is my personal belief. But there are so many theories out there, and we are going to cover one right now that I saw in the Oxygen documentary. So now y'all know that I tell you the truth. So as I mentioned previously in preparation for this video, I watched a documentary called The Disappearance of the Millbrook Twins. Now, <laughs> let me tell you, firstly, I could not find this documentary anywhere, not even on Oxygen, despite them being the original network to produce this documentary, and despite that it came out in 2019, and at this time, it's only 2022. Now, the show was listed on Amazon Prime 
time, but it was not available in my country. So that should have been the first red flag. And on top of that, the reviews were scathing. Still, I found a documentary on voodoo.com. I paid like four bucks to watch this thing, which was $4 too many. And just to be honest, I really hope voodoo.com does not take my PayPal information and recharge me. The whole thing was sketchy, but I really wanted to watch this documentary because I wanted to see the family members. So that way I can get information straight from the family who have the most information right now. Anyway, this documentary follows CNN contributor Laura Coates and retired detective Paige Reynolds. And they go on what I can only describe as a wild goose chase to solve this case. You know, I got what I needed out of the documentary by watching the family and learning from the family's words. And I actually did learn some important tidbits from the interviews and the family members, which we'll get to in a minute. In the documentary, Laura and Paige are talking to the creators of the Fall Line podcast, Brooke Hargrove and Laura Norton. Now, Brooke and Laura said that they found a connection between the two prominent drug dealers. And, and, and these two drug dealers were connected to the twins' father, John Milbrook. So they wrote to one of these connections, a man who was currently in jail. And long story short, you know, too late. But the guy wrote back and basically said, I have information if you can help me. So instantly red flag. And because it's 30 years it's passed and he's only talking now in hopes of his case getting picked up by something or somebody. You know, he's in there for a violent crime. Man should just stay there. But anyway, Brooke and Laura took this info and did the correct thing and went straight to the police. But that was two years prior to the filming. And since then, nothing has come of it. Oh my goodness, this is long-winded. But please stay with me. We're, we're coming back around. So they pass this information onto our hosts, Laura and Paige. And Laura and Paige takes this story and just runs with it. They get in contact with the man's daughter, who after a lot of dramatic scenes, she tells them that her father knows what happens to the twins and that they are now deceased. This guy, whose name is wrote back and basically said, I have information if you can help me. So instantly red flag and Brooke and Laura took this info and did the correct thing. And that is go straight to the police. But that was two years prior to filming the documentary and nothing has come of it since. And so they passed this information onto our hosts, Laura and Paige. And Laura and Paige take this story and completely run wild with it. You know, they get in contact with Vaughn's daughter who told them, you know, after much dramatic pauses and music that her father knew what happened to the twins and that they are now deceased. And after this, they call Vaughn, who tells this elaborate story about how the twins were at their father's apartment by using drugs. And from there, they were assaulted by a man at the apartment. And one twin tried to defend the other. And as a result, they were both murder. He then speculates that the bodies were dumped at the local brickyard. Remember, the same brickyard that Joseph worked at. And so Laura and Paige takes this information and rightfully tells the sheriff. And the sheriff agrees to look into it. And he actually sends his two men to go and question Vaughn's in prison only two days later. But Laura and Paige could not wait for more information. Oh no, they go straight to the family And with some light embellishment, they 
tell the mother and sister of the twins this dramatic story that Bonds told them. And in the show, they present the story as a fact to the family without any proof to the grieving family. They push the cameras in their faces, tell them this story. And they even go as far as saying that they probably, the family probably won't be able to retrieve the bodies and hold a proper funeral, which again, without any evidence, this is bonkers because remember there is a Jane Doe buried who we're still waiting to test that may be one of the twins. So to just say that, you know, to just say that, hey, you, you're not going to get your daughters back. Most likely that's it. And to say that on camera with the, with their cameras and their faces made me so angry and upset because as someone who presents true crime content in hopes of spreading truth, the fact that these people who are backed by you know, multi-billion dollar organizations are doing the bare minimum just for views and like reactions. It's just, oh my goodness, it was heartbreaking. And of course, the family is just devastated in hearing this. And while they are telling the family, the police are still questioning this witness. And this criminal who is currently in jail for a violent crime then tells the police that he made the story up. And when the police fact-checked his story, they found that he was most likely referring to a different murder anyway. And though this guy allegedly told the police that he lied, he then goes and tells his daughter that the police told him to lie. To imply a cover-up. Are you with me? I hope so, because it gets crazier. So now, the community believes the police is covering up based upon this man, who again, is in jail, and is trying to get attention for his case. And now, looking at this story, there is absolutely no proof or hint that a cover-up is even needed. The police even admitted that they grossly mishandled the case, hence why they reopened the case in 2013. But now, Laura and Paige are convinced that the sheriff lied to them. And so they go and they confront the sheriff and pretty much call him a liar to his face in his own office. And the segment ends with him walking off. Again, it's a straight S show. To me, it sounded like the production was mad that they believed Vaughn's story. And when it turned out to all just be a lie and just wrong information, they just then had to place the negative spotlight on someone else, which happened to be the current sheriff who was there helping them in the first place. So the reason why I'm bringing up this documentary and telling you this, that way you guys don't go and look it up. I always recommend the sources that I find, you know, so that way you guys can go do some further reading. It's, it's the first documentary to pop up when talking about these girls. And it is abysmal. It is awful. And all this documentary did was muddy the investigation. They even presented a shaky story to the girl's mother with their own embellishments just for dramatic effect. Like, for example, Laura, one of the hosts, you know, kept talking about how hard one of the twins fought for her daughter. But all this was, was for dramatic effect. None of this was even mentioned by Vaughn. She just added it in there to make it sound good for TV. But I did learn something from this documentary. 
And that is that all of the sisters used to visit John Milbrook's apartment. Now, John at this time was a crack addict who allegedly housed drug dealers in his apartment. And this story is corroborated by their younger sister, Shanta. I found this interesting because when Laura spoke to the original detective that was assigned to the case, Detective Ship, he said that he assumed that the girls ran away because they were well known to the department. He did elaborate on this, and I should mention that we only have Laura's word for this, as Detective Ship rightfully did not want to be filmed. And though Ship is a cruddy individual, because again, he chose not to investigate this case, possibly because of racial biases, the girls were black, I don't know if I mentioned that, but maybe the girls were not known as Ship claims to be, but maybe he knew their father. Still, that does not excuse the police for not investigating the disappearances, but it makes sense that Ship may associate them with drug dealing, even if the girls are only guilty of being John Milbrook's daughters. Still, knowing that John Milbrook's twins and their sisters used to hang out at at his apartment with these horrible men just adds another layer of complexity to this case, especially when you think, you know, was Joseph one of these men? who would hang out at his apartment, a known murderer and possible serial killer. And it just reinforces the idea that these girls were always in a vulnerable position. This case could have been avoided. It could have been avoided. Unfortunately, in 1990, we are not as careful as we are now. And when looking up this case, I saw a lot of comments from other mothers saying, man, if my daughters were followed by a van, I wouldn't have let them back out that night. Well, get this. This is 1990. There is no way that their mother would have suspected this could happen to them. It just didn't happen that often or ever, especially in a neighborhood where they knew everybody. It is because of cases like these that we are now careful or more careful with our teenagers and with our young girls specifically. Before I sign off, I'm going to give you a physical description of the twins at that day. And of course, I'm going to put their images of what they may look like today. And I'm reading this straight from missingkids.com, which is missing and exploited children. So that way I get all the information right. When they went missing, their black hair was styled in soft, shiny, loose curls, known as jerry curls. Both have brown eyes, pierced ears, and scars on their navels from operations shortly after birth. Donette was five foot six, 130 pounds, and described to be bow-legged. She was last seen wearing a white top with Mickey Mouse on it. Both girls loved Mickey Mouse and white jeans with black shoes. Johnette was five foot four, 125 pounds, and she was last seen wearing a blue pullover shift, a white turtleneck, a beige skirt, white stockings, and white sneakers. The twins were in the ninth grade at Lucy Laney High School. If you are listening, I highly encourage that you look at this show notes so that way you can look at the computer renderings of what they may look like today because of course there's always a chance that they did run away. No one really thinks so, but I like to believe that in these cases they are still alive. So that is the case of the Millbrook twins. And if you have any information, please check the links below. My name is Sophia Talley and this has been True Crime and Knit. For more information, visit www.thedrunkknitter.com slash true crime. Stay safe, my friends.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.